share her story. She's going to share about the orphanage. She's going to share about whatever God's put on her heart. And so I just want you to be ready. They're, uh, they're serving at a church. They're pastoring a church. When I was in England, I was there for their induction service into a church in Utoxico. Took me a while to practice, <laughs> but it's called Utoxico, and so a great church and a movie theater, and so just great things have been happening. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's give Becky a big hand this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm um, Matthew. Actually, teases me that I'm becoming more African because uh, my timekeeping s- skills are kind of a little bit African. So sometimes I need a little bit, a little bit of help with timekeeping. Um, but being a year late for a speaking engagement is just disgraceful by any standard. So I totally apologize. You would have actually had Matthew, I think, this time last year. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's worth the wait. I'm biased, he's my husband, but he's worth the wait. Um, and I'm so blessed this morning because, as Pastor said, this time last year on the 4th of October, I was taken into a conference room and told that my husband, who was 27 years old, had maybe two, maybe three hours left to live. And just being stood there in that moment of every dream and promise I believed God had spoken over our lives, not just my life, but our lives together. In the natural, it was like everything just shattered. Everything was just broken. Every promise of God just seemed to be lying on the floor in pieces. And I just remember thinking, this can't be, this this can't be. And basically, we'd been out in Kenya in the September, and where we work is a high malaria zone, and we were very foolish and didn't take malaria tablets. If you take malaria tablets and you go, you're fine. If you don't take malaria tablets and go, you're not necessarily fine. But we thought, you know what, we're young, we're healthy, you know, we're in the will of God, and therefore we're untouchable, right? And we learned our harsh lesson that day that, you know what, you can be walking in the will of God, but he gives you brain cells for a reason, and he puts medicines in the earth for a reason, and so we learned a big lesson the hard way, and now we take our tablets. Is there a weird feedback, or is that just me hearing this? Okay, that's all right then. Um, no, 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 I'm fine. I can just hear something, but as long as you guys are, are good. Now, I know I have a weird accent. I get told it everywhere I go. So if I start to lose you guys, please someone wave at me and I'll try and tame it back in because I get excited. And so I, I, when I get excited, I forget where I am and I go back to my Yorkshire dialect. I'm from the northern part of England and we have quite a broad accent. Um, so if I start to lose you, please wave at me. Don't, don't stay in the dark. Wave at me and then I'll try and tame it back in and, and sort myself out. But so we were out in, in Kenya last September and Matthew contracted malaria, but we didn't know. We'd gone back to England for two days and then we came over to America. We'd been preaching up in Cincinnati and all that area with Pastor Cleddy Keith. And then we'd come down to Alabama and Matthew, bless his heart. He, I'm not sure he's quite forgiven me for this yet, but he started to tell me he was ill. And, you know, sometimes... I'm not going to generalize guys. I'm going to say Matthew. Sometimes Matthew, because that's safer. Sometimes Matthew can be a bit, like he might have a cold, but he'll say he's got the flu, you know? And so he said, baby, I, I don't feel well at all. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got a temperature. Well, we gave him some Tylenol and he pretty much recovered. So I was like, men. 
And um, we carried on our business and then we flew down to Alabama and he was just really complaining about not feeling well. And I'm a nurse by trade, so I should have known better. But I was being quite a brutal wife and I was like, man up, take the Tylenol. We've got a lot to do. Come on. And I should have known because it's not like Matt to lay in bed. He, he, anybody who knows Matt, he, he like doesn't sit still for two minutes. He's like, go, go, go. I have to run to keep up with him. And he was just laid in the bed and it, it wasn't looking good. So we finally took him to the doctors and the doctor said, well, I'll give you some tablets. And if you're not better in two days, come back. Well, two days went by and he actually got significantly worse. By now, he did have my attention. By now, I was thinking, oh, he really doesn't look good at all. Uh, we went to the doctors again, and as soon as the doctors saw him, he took a blood test and rushed him straight to the ER. And um, Matthew doesn't do anything by half, so as well as being tested for malaria, they actually thought he had Ebola. And so we were put in quarantine for four days. Everybody we'd been with in Cincinnati was freaking out, infecting the house, you know, scrubbing every work surface, everything we'd touched. And um, they, thought we, they, they thought he had malaria, uh, Ebola. And thankfully, mercifully, four days later, we found out he didn't. He had malaria, but he had a very fatal strain. And malaria, if you get 5% in your red blood cells, it's severe. And on the day he was admitted to the ER, he was at 20%. But the following day, it went to 50. And as a nurse, I know that you don't, you don't recover from that. You, you, once your blood's half gone, it's much more overtaken because the way it multiplies is so rapid. And I just sat in that moment thinking, this can't be. You know, we've got so many promises of God. We, we know the plans he's got for our lives together. Matt's 27. He can't be dying in a couple of hours. And just in that moment of panicness, just crying out to God and saying, I remember saying at one point, I can't even pray anymore. Let my tears be the prayers because I'd run out of words. I'd, I'd used up my powerful prayers on day one and day two and now we're on day four and he's significantly worse and he's, he's going to be gone soon. And I remember saying to God, just let my, my, let my tears be, be the prayers now. And God is so kind and God is so good. And in that, in, it was the fourth day when all of a sudden, the peace from Philippians 4, 7, the peace that will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. It surpasses all understanding. And all of a sudden where there'd been chaos and kind of franticness, if I'm going to be honest, of what we're going to do, you know, how can I carry on the work that I'll tell you a bit about in a second? How, how do I carry that on? How do I raise our little boy? How do I tell Matt's mother? That was the thing I was dreading the most. Um, just, just the franticness of how, how do I pay a mortgage? You know, I'm a single parent mom. And how, how do I do it, God? You know, how do I, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Just kind of frantic in that moment. And then all of a sudden I woke up and it was the prayers of the saints, I strongly believe. We had people around the world just raising our hands when we weren't strong enough to. And people prayed us through the darkest hours of our life. And all of a sudden there, there came a peace that didn't make sense. I went walking into the hospital and just suddenly everything within me had changed. The circumstances hadn't changed. They were still telling me he'd still die. But everything within me had changed. And suddenly the scripture that I learned as a little girl there's a difference from knowing it here and actually walking it out. And suddenly I could walk out the scripture and take my thoughts captive. When my thoughts try to run away with me of what about this, what about this, what about this, I could take it captive and declare the word. And we saw Matthew healed. It was just the most remarkable, remarkable thing. I, I won't say much more because I know he's going to share on that tonight and I don't want to steal his thunder. 
but God was so, so good to us. And a year on, here we are. So we went back to Alabama. We went back to the ICU unit on Friday. And we walked in, and the nurses just ran towards us. I'm like, wow, you know, 12 months on, here you are. And Matt's looking great and strong and healthy. And it was just so wonderful just to go back and say thank you. Thank you. You know, not many people do that these days. We're in a culture of what can I get for me and then just go on. But I want to be one of those who goes back and says thank you. So I want to say thank you to every church who prayed for us during that time. I know you guys were praying for us, and I want to say thank you. And to the nursing staff and to the doctors that worked on his body, we wanted to say thank you. So God's been really, really good. We run a, a nonprofit organization called One by One. I'm going to show you a little clip about it in just a second. Um, but basically, we've taken in, uh, we've got 60 children who are our children. We're legally their guardians. But we have 150 kids that we work with day in, day out out there, feeding them, educating them. Um, and they're the most remarkable, remarkable children who bless my life daily. Um, but it takes a lot to, to run it. <laughs> it. It takes a lot of faith and a lot of money to run it. Um, but if you wanted to sponsor a child, you can do that. We've got some farms out the back. So once it's finished, come through and see me. We'll be on the back desk. And if you want to sponsor a child, it's £30 a month, $30. I'm in England, not in England, $30 a month. And that would just pay towards their food, their medical costs, their educational costs and everything like that. You can write to the child. The children love to hear from their sponsors. A lot of our kids, some of them are total orphans. Other, others of them, one parent died, the other parent abandoned them. So for kids who have been abandoned by the people who should love them most in the world to suddenly be accepted into somebody else's family to be sponsored and accepted as part of somebody else's family many miles away, it really does something in the heart of our kids. And when you can write to them. They love to hear from their sponsors. A lot of our kids have got photos by the bedside of the people sponsoring them. And it's just really beautiful to see that. And I believe it's brought some healing to these kids' heart. So if you want to sponsor a child, come and see me afterwards and we can tell you more about that. But if we just run the clip real quick and then uh, I'll share what's on my heart. Yeah. 
Thank you. Those, those babies are absolutely the apple of my eye. They astound me daily. They are the ones, three years ago, they didn't know anything about Jesus and his love. And now three years later, they're the ones teaching me what it is to be Christ-like. Um, just incredible children who love God with all their heart. You know, the little girl who started it, who said it's, it's not just an orphanage, it's my home. She's called Jessica. She's 14 and she's HIV positive. And without a miracle, she, she will die. But when I take her with me around the village to do evangelism and she lays hands on the sick, they are always healed. And what amazes me about Jessica is never, we met one lady who she had um, pains, a constant daily pain in her chest and her stomach. And we tried to tell her about the love of Christ and she didn't want to know. She, you know, she, keep your religion to yourself. I don't want to know attitude. And then she happened to mention about this pain that she's had every single day for the last three years. And so Jessica went and she just simply laid hands upon her and, and prayed the most simple prayer as a, as a child would do and said, Jesus, please take the pain away and heal this lady. Instantly, a pain that had been consistent every single day for three years instantly left. The, the pain fully went. And all of a sudden, she was then like, who's Jesus? <laughs> she suddenly, where she didn't want to know before, now she wanted to know. And um, little Jessica could have looked at that woman and thought, you've got a stomach ache, you've got chest pain, I'm going to die from my illness. But there was never a glimmer of that. She immediately wanted to go and pray for this lady. And when I watched that, I see kids that they're so, they're, ch they're children, and yet they've got a lot more than many of us in the Western world have got. They've got such a, a raw faith, such a, a hunger for Jesus, such a passion and a love for the man who changed their lives. And they want, now want to go out and take the world for Christ. And so I, I'm just constantly amazed by these children. They are literally the apple of my eye. But I was 18 years old, and um, I actually wanted to go and study law. And I was on a missions trip at the time. I didn't really go on the missions trip because I was passionate about missions. I just love cultures. I love different languages. I l not that I'm good at speaking them, but I like to hear it. Um, I certainly like different food. love food a little bit too much. And, um, but I just loved different cultures. I like to experience different areas from England. So I was on a missions trip to Romania. And God spoke. I'd never heard him speak to me so directly and so clear before. I'd been brought up as a Christian. I was saved at nine and filled with the Holy Spirit at 14. But I'd never heard the voice of God speak directly to my heart. And I was 18. I was sat by the lake one day. And God, out of the blue, said, you're going to run a children's home. Well, I was actually on the trip with another girl called Becky. I'm Becky. And I was with another girl called Becky. And her passion was to be a children's evangelist. And, you know, some people are just automatically good with kids. They're very like, rah, type people, larger than life, you know. She was one of them. She fitted the mold perfect. I wanted to go and study law. I wanted to wear nice business suits and have a nice house. And kids didn't come into the picture at all. And I remember sat in that moment thinking, he got the wrong Becky. She would have been way better for the job. But, you know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And now... When I'm with my babies, I come alive. I literally come alive when I'm out there with them because that's who I was always destined to be. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. But he gave me the promise when I was 18. But there was a 13-year waiting period before the promise became fulfilled. And so I want to speak this morning to you guys about, about vision and about the principles of vision. 
In Proverbs 29, verse 18, it's just one verse, so you don't have to turn if you don't want, but in Proverbs 29, verse 18, it says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Other translations will say people without a vision will perish. And I believe there is a plan and a purpose for absolutely every single one of our lives. It's not meant for the superstars of the kingdom, the people on God TV and all that stuff. It's, it's every single one of us. God has a plan and a destiny for every single one of us. And I believe that having a vision for your life of what God means for your life, of what God's plan for your life is, I believe it's critical because it helps you keep focused and it helps your direction. And so I want to speak this morning on five principles of vision. I want to speak about preparation, provision, protection, power, and purpose. So when I get to purpose, you can breathe a sigh of relief. It's over. Um, but I just want to speak just real quickly on the five principles of what's really held me and protected me and guided me. The first one is preparation. So I had the, the voice of God speak to me at 18, and I was really excited by it. I was shocked by it, but I was excited by it. And I would go and tell everyone, oh, this is what God said I'm going to do. I'm going to build a children's home. And, and yet in the reality, I was, I was doing a nine-to-five job, going day in, day out, doing my job, just being faithful to my local church. And many times in that 13-year in that period, people would come up to me and say, well, did God say? You know, it was fine on year one and year two, but after 10 years have passed from a promise you've been given and nothing appearingly is still happening, people would come and say, well, are you sure God said? And i got to tell you, many times I thought to myself, did God say? Have I got this wrong? What's going on? People would say, you know, just book a flight to Timbuktu and just go open one. But I was so, the, the, the story of Abraham and Sarah is a story that's really prominent in my life about holding the promise of God. And I was so determined to not do it my way and create an Ishmael. I was so determined to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled in his way and his timing and create an Isaac rather than an Ishmael. But those years were, were hard. I think sometimes waiting for the promise of God is one of the hardest things we can go through. But if you're in a season of preparation, you're not on your own. Joseph waited 13 years. He was given the dreams as a young 17-year-old boy about ru ruling and leadership. But he had to wait 13 years. And in those 13 years, everything went the opposite way. He was sold into slavery. In those days, I mean, in these days, slavery's don't, slaves don't have much rights. But in those days, they had no rights whatsoever, no, no human rights at all. From there, he went into prison. I mean, it started to go the absolute opposite direction of what he believed God had told him. And yet, actually, through that whole, the principles of God, he changed over that 13-year period. And suddenly, he became capable, his character became capable of leading the nation. Whereas, had he gone as a 17-year-old, his character wouldn't have kept him there. And sometimes, we have to wait for a reason. Abraham waited 25 years for the promise of Isaac. Moses waited 40 years. He was out in the wilderness, saw the burning bush, and then that all of a sudden launched. David waited 15 years. Samuel came and anointed David in the Old Testament to be the next king of Israel. And he had to wait 15 years until he became the king of Judah. From there, it was another seven years until he was the king of Israel. So 22 years in total. Jesus himself waited 30 years. And if you're in a season of preparation, don't give up on your dream. 
Don't give up on the promise God has spoken to you, but keep a hold of that promise. Don't let the voice of the enemy or the voice of your friends turn you against it. Because actually in that preparation period, it's not just a kind of waiting it out. What God's doing in those years is essential. Those 13 years for me from being 18 to being 31, I completely changed. I loved God. With I really loved God. I was brought up in a Christian household. and I loved God, but I wasn't in love with him. It can be a huge difference, you know? I brought up and I, I knew him as, as Lord and Master, but I didn't know him as my best friend or the love of my soul. And I remember the day I fell in love with Jesus in a, in a real powerful way. I didn't encounter with Christ and I fell in love with him. And it became much more than just lip service. I, 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 I love Jesus with all my heart. He is the reason of everything. He's the reason I wake up in the morning. He's my first thought and my last thought. He is the lover of my soul. I love Jesus. And everything that comes out, it all flows from that. You know, love Christ and then we'll get a love for others. And if Christ is not the center of what we're doing, then put down your tools. If you're serving the church, but you don't, you're not madly in love with Jesus, put down your tools and just spend time with the king. Because once he wins your heart, everything changes. And in that 13-year period for me, my life just transformed. I fell madly in love with my Savior. And he had to do a, a work on my heart and on my character. But in Isaiah 49, verse 2, let me just turn to that. I want to read that to you guys. Because sometimes waiting can be the hardest thing. many bookmarks in my Bible that actually turning to things is impossible. <laughs> All right. Okay. He made my mouth like a shut up and sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. A quiver is where they would have the quiver on their back, and that would be where the arrows were stored. And they would then take it out of the quiver and launch the arrow. And sometimes when we're waiting, we feel like we're a million miles from being launched. We don't understand what, what's this waiting about. But if you're in a season of preparation, I just want to encourage you that you're in God's quiver right now. You're right there by his side. You're right next to him. And at the right moment, as long as you remain close to him, he'll lean right back and get you and launch you. And you will be sharper than you would have been before. You'll, be, you'll pierce the darkness in a way that you could never do by yourself. But when you remain close to him, Remain in his quiver. Don't move away from his plan. Don't move away from his promise, but remain in that quiver so he can just take you out and launch you at the perfect time that the darkness will be pierced. The second point I want to make is provision. Um, let's just read from John 6 first. So John 6, verse 5 to 14. It said, when Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said, Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked him this to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him and said, It would take more than half a year's wage to buy enough bread for all these people to have just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go against so many? How far can that go? It's just a little boy's lunchbox. And as we know, Jesus prays over it. And he goes and he fil feeds 5,000. There's probably actually more than 5,000. It says there were 5,000 men. There have been women and children there as well. And God, over a little tiny boy's lunchbox, fed the masses. 
And I've discovered that, you know, sometimes we can look at ourselves and think, what on earth have we got to offer? I come from, my, my mother was a cleaner. My father was a postman. We come from a, a quite, poor is the wrong word by contrast to Kenya, but a poorer part of England. And in the natural, we have nothing and are nothing. But, you know, when we take our nothingness and put it in the hands of the master, he'll do incredible, outrageous things with our nothingness. It's just, we've got to hand over. If we hold on to our little lunchbox thinking, well, this can't do anything, so it'll just suffice me, so I'll keep it to myself and eat it myself because, well, it can't do anything for all these people, so I may as well eat off it. If that little boy had thought like that that day, no one would have eaten. And yet, actually, he handed over his nothingness into the hands of the master, and everybody ate. And I've seen God provide for us in just ridiculous ways, ludicrous ways. I started, we worked with an evangelist called Nathan Morris, and he would go and do mass gospel campaigns in real parts of, real poor parts of the world. But for me, you can't go up to the starving man on the street and say, God loves you, and then walk on by. Because the gospel to that starving man at that moment looks like a bowl of rice, you know? We've got to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We can't just blase, say God loves you and walk on by. If there's something in your hand you can do to show them the love of God, once you win people's hearts, you'll win their ears. That's what I've found so far in Kenya. And so we were going, and I, I kind of ran his humanitarian arm, I guess. We were known as Shake the Nations one by one at that point. And um, I was going doing a feeding program. We were super small. We weren't some great ministry. I was just one girl with a passion for the poor. And so I, I went to do this feeding program. I'd, I'd done a little bit of fundraising and had enough money to feed 50 people. That was it. I mean, we're talking small. And um, I remember getting to the venue and I got food to feed 50 people. And we arrived and it was a derelict bus shelter where amputee patients were living. Um, we were in Sierra Leone, there's no government aid, there's nothing, and for people with no arms, they can't work. And so they were destitute families living in this um, old bus station. And I remember getting there, and there was about 100 people there. Now, anyone with faith would have thought, great, more people to hear the gospel. I was thinking, this is terrible. I've only got enough food for half of them. This is a nightmare. So I learned quite quick on, preach the gospel and then feed them, because if you do it the other way around, they'll go. And um, so I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm, I'm scared. All I'm thinking about is there's not enough food for all these people. We've got them here under false pretenses. They're going to be really mad. It's going to reflect badly on the gospel, and, oh, this is bad. But when it came to feeding them, we just kept serving it, and I was praying over that rice and kept serving it and kept serving it. And at the end, they came up to me and they said, there's a family who couldn't come out today because they are so ill. So any leftovers, can you put it in their washing bowl? I was like, yeah, sure. We had a little blue, we would call it a Tupperware box, kind of like a plastic box, a little blue box with enough food to feed 50 people. And I remember scraping the leftovers into this washing bowl, which was probably double the size of the little blue box I, sta box I started with. It was only at that point, it suddenly, it takes me a while to catch on, it was only at that point I thought, wait a minute, everybody's eaten and the leftovers is bigger than what I started with. What is that about? Well, I'd worked with a lady called Heidi Baker who does an incredible work with thousands and thousands of orphans in Mozambique. She's like 
she's my hero of the faith. She's an incredible person. She has a walk with Christ that's just so pure and beautiful. And I, I knew that food had multiplied in Mozambique before, but I thought, well, God does that for the Heidi Bakers of this world. I'm just little old me, you know? Surely not. But you know what? It's never, ever about us, ever. It's always about them. And God actually loves the poor way more than I do. And he provided. And I remember the, the next day going, and this time we had the same, li- you would think I'd learn, but we went with the same little blue box to feed 50 people. I arrived at the venue, and I kid you not, there were 200 people there. I kid you not, 200 people there. And I, I just freaked out. I'm, I remember thinking there was an, a fire exit door right here. We were in a church. Everyone was here. And I remember seeing that fire exit door. There was me and one other girl. The other girl was quite well built. I remember thinking, well, she might be able to look after herself, but I don't stand a chance. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I'm preaching. This, this is all while I'm preaching the gospel. This is all going through my head. I end up the fire exit door. That's where you're going to run. And we came to serving the food. And again, we just prayed over that rice. Keep stirring and praying, stirring and praying. And... Um, we believe when you're feeding the hungry, don't give them a little portion, but give them the belly full. You know, really fill the belly. And so we were giving quite big platefuls for these hungry people. And I remember one of the ladies who was volunteering to give it out, she kept coming up to me and she said, you're giving too big a portion, they're not all going to eat. And I thought, no, uh, you know, what, what Jesus did yesterday, and nope, we're going to keep going. So I kept giving this big portion, and she came back a second time. She's like, by now the, the box is halfway down. She's like, you're going to run out of food. You're giving way too big a portion. And I, I thought for a second, oh, do I start giving smaller portions? And I thought, no, I'm going to carry on and just see what God does. And if not, the fire exit right there. And we carried on and we served in the rice. And a third time she came back and she said, I'm telling you now, by now the, the rice is maybe this much off the bottom and more than half people still not eating. And she said, I'm telling you now, if you carry on giving this size portion, you are going to run out of food you're going to have a real problem on your hands. And for a second, I almost wavered. But this girl, who was more well-built than I, she would ne- you would never see her on a microphone. She's kind of one of the behind-the-scenes type of girls. Doesn't, you know, she's the nameless, faceless. But had it not been for her that day, I believe we wouldn't have seen a miracle because she just looked at me. She didn't, she didn't pray in tongues over me. She didn't even read scripture at me. She just nodded. But all that nod meant was, I'm with you. I'm with you. And, you know, we're, we're an army together. It's not about one person out doing it by themselves. We're an army together. And as we stand side by side, there's a strength that comes from unity. There's a real power that comes from unity. And her just nodding that day gave me the thing of, well, at least if we die, we die together. <laughs> real woman of faith right here. And, um, and so I said, no, we're going to carry on giving this size portion because of that precious woman right there. And so we carried on. And then I remember I served the last three plates. Every grain of rice had gone. The last three plates on this table in front of me. And I'm thinking, okay, this is it. I'm about to meet my savior. This is the moment where I'm going to get mobbed for not feeding them. And all of a sudden, this same woman who had said, you need to give smaller portion, she came up to me and she said, well, that's it. Everybody's eaten. They're three spare plates. I remember, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to die quite yet. It was just amazing. And to see God multiply the rice like that just was unbelievable. But what it did is it set something in me. It set a faith in my little heart right there in that moment that, do you know what? If he can do this, he can do anything. God's got a heart for these people. And as long as I'm walking in that will, he'll do anything. He'll do the absurd. 
and seeing the rice multiply was absurd. But fast forward years later, and I've got this passion to build a children's home. I had 1,000 pounds, so like $1,500 or something. But I got the bill for the children's home, which would have been about $200,000. $200,000 in the grand scheme of things is not a huge amount, but for me in that moment, it may as well have been 50 million. It was just a ludicrous amount of money that I did not have. We're not a big ministry at this point. We didn't have a church or anything like that. There was no tactical or strategic way to bring in this finance. It was literally just mission impossible. And I remember being sat there with a dream in my hands, but it came in the form of a bill from the architectures and from the builders. And I remember looking at them numbers thinking, oh, oh, what do I do now? But you know, I gave my nothingness, I gave my big bill over to the Lord and he brought in that money. And the year he brought in that money was the year 2011. And that was the year my little boy was born. He was born very poorly. We were lived intense, spent the entire year in hospital, almost died twice, was ventilated and had five major surgeries. And the whole year there was no fundraising. There was no going around churches trying to raise awareness or raise funds. There was none of that. It was a year where I focused on one little boy, my own little boy, and just loved him back to life. But in that year, checks would come in the mail. People would write to us and say, I don't know why, but I just feel I need to give you this. We had a couple of huge donations, but we had a lot of just little old ladies coming up to me saying, I just want to give you this and putting 20 pounds in my hand. And little by little, within a year, I saw all the funds come in so that we opened the home debt-free on the 12th of the 12th of the 12th. And to see the priv provision of God like that was just remarkable. You know, Cleddy Keith says this. He said, God's will, God's bill. And we've seen that time and time and time again. But right from the outset of God doing that with the rice, it gave me the passion, the, the faith and the hope in Christ to do everything else. And there's a provision that comes when you're walking in the vision of God and the will of God. There's a provision that comes for it. The third point is protection. In Acts 28, we read about Paul. He's just been shipwrecked. He's, he's kind of having a bad day. And it says, once safely ashore, they'd been shipwrecked. They finally landed on the island of Malta. It says, the island showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all. It was raining and cold. So Paul gathered a pile of bushwood. And as he put it in the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For although he has escaped the sea, the god goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected to see him swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, maybe he's a god. People would do that. People are pretty fickle, you know. When it's going good, they want to be around you. When it's not going good, they're long gone. We've seen that a couple of times. We, we were part of a, a big revival in Alabama, and the masses were there. And I mean, it was wonderful. I gained so much weight because that southern, that southern hospitality, oh my goodness, pecan pie. And I, I gained so much weight because everyone was so kind to us and so good to us. We were part of this wonderful revival, and we were serving the evangelist who was the man of God in the hour and everyone wanted to be around us and it, it was an exciting time it was a wonderful time but all of a sudden we left the revival and came back to England to have a baby boy and that baby boy when it nearly died and there were no masses there was no one around 
There was no one cooking me pecan pie. There was, there was suddenly no one around. And in our hour of need, if we're dependent on the crowds, we'll, we'll really struggle. But actually, when you're dependent upon one person only, he's, al- he's more than enough. He's always enough and more than enough. And we learned a valuable lesson that, you know, the crowds can be kind of fickle. But as long as you remain in the will of God, there's a the protection that comes. And we've seen the protection of God upon our, t- our lives multiple, multiple times. The obvious being Matthew now with the malaria and how God totally, I mean, all his organs went into failure. His heart, his lungs, his kidneys, his liver. He wasn't left with much that was working. Everything was shut down. And to see God completely healing where now there's no side effects whatsoever. Everyone we meet, even the doctors and the nurses this weekend were like, so what medication are you still on? Nothing. Not anything. No side effects at all. We saw the protection of God come. But we've seen it time and time again. I remember being in Sierra Leone in 2006. And um, we were going doing a big gospel campaign. And there were three, three cars. And I was in the back car. The evangelist was in the front car. I think Matthew was with him. We weren't married at the time. And there was another second car with volunteers. And I was in the last car. And our car suddenly broke down. But we were in the middle of nowhere. We had no cell phones, so we couldn't ring and say, hey, we broke down, come back for us. The two front cars were oblivious to the fact that the third car was nowhere to be seen. So they went on, and we were literally in the middle of nowhere. Well, I was kind of fine about it at first because everything's an adventure and when you're walking in the will of God you know I I just I love life I'm I like life I find life fun and so I was like okay it'll all work out it'll be fine and we'd been stood there a few hours and all of a sudden what was afternoon suddenly was getting to dusk and then it was getting to dark and it was when our driver was panicking about us white girls being there when he panicked I panicked He's like, you guys need to hide in the back of the car because if anyone goes past and sees two white girls stood here, you'll, we'll never hear from you again. Oh, words of comfort right there. So he'd, the, the driver's under the bonnet looking. I, it's a good job I wasn't driving. I can lift up the bonnet. You don't call it a bonnet here, a trunk. Trunk? You lift up the trunk. There we go. We said, yeah, is a bonnet just a hat here? Oh, that's funny. Oh, wow. Okay. He was in the trunk, not in my hat. And... Um, he was looking, if, I, if that had been me, how would have looked? And I'd been like, well, there's an engine and there's a few pipes. Don't have a clue what I'm looking for. Thankfully, our driver did. And he narrowed down that we needed a certain pipe that went from one metal-looking thing to another metal-looking thing. can tell I'm a good mechanic, right? And um, it was a particular part that we needed and a, a particular electrical wire that we needed. We're in the middle of nowhere we don't just happen to have this electrical part in our handbags. We just don't walk around with it. And he's panicking. So I'm thinking, this is not going good. Our valiant boys who had gone ahead in the cars had still not returned. Still probably wasn't realized we were still missing. Eating their burgers at the hotel and <laughs> not realizing we're nowhere to be seen. And I'm thinking, this is not going good. All of a sudden, a guy on a bicycle rides towards us. And on the bicycle, he had a little basket at the front. You know, you know the type of little baskets that your kids have? We're not talking a big basket, a tiny little basket on the front. Well, first, the first miracle was the guy stopped. And um, he's, he pulled up on his little bicycle and he's like, what's the problem? They talked through. Second miracle was he just so happened to have in his little basket the exact wire we needed. He also knew how to fit it, 
Honey didn't ask for a penny, didn't ask for a dime. Like, that does not happen. And I remember the moment of him peddling off into the sunset, quite literally, thinking, did that just happen? This is crazy. But sure enough, started the engine, and on we went to get our burgers with the boys. Unbelievable. But I just saw the hand of God in the most obscure ways provide for us and protect us in a way that we just couldn't imagine. And when you are following in the will of God, when you are following the vision that God's given you, the promise he's laid in your hearts, when you follow that, he protects you and guides you in a way that I can't even, I still can't get my head around it. It just amazes me constantly. So the first part is preparation. The second part is provision. The third part is protection. The fourth point is power. It says in Acts, in Acts, we, we read the, I won't read the scripture for the sake of time, but we read about um, the, the disciples in the upper room. But before we get to that, we, we read the, the words of Jesus, which says, wait until you are endured with power. And once that power comes, as we know in Acts 2, 3,000 go and give their lives to Christ. Once they have the flame of fire upon their heads and a fire and the Holy Spirit within them, they go out and say the same words that they probably said all the time before, but this time there's something different. The Holy Spirit's there, and 3,000 come to Christ in that day. I want a day like that. I want a day where I go out into our little village, and we live, work in a little village called Bumalabi. I want a day where I go out, and all of a sudden, 3,000 come to Christ rather than just the threes, you know? I'm thankful for the threes, but I'm believing for the 3,000s. And there's a power that comes upon our life when we are following in the will of God and seeking him and him alone. There's a power that comes upon our lives. When I started in Bumalabi, I, was, I went out there as a missionary, and I'd come across missionaries in our home church, you know, and they're all kind of sweet, nice, wonderful people. And I was sent out as a missionary to Bumalabi, and I found out in my first week there that I was known as the witch. Not the greatest starting point when you're going out as the missionary. I was the witch. Clearly, I'd not had a coffee <laughs> when they met me. Um, I was known as the white witch, not because they thought I was a good witch, but because of my skin color. And so all the village, and in a village where we are, there is no media, there's no television, there's no newspapers, there's no, uh, well, they do have radio now, but there's very little um, way of giving news. So actually, word of mouth is news. That's how you find things out. So what would be a rumor here would be news out there. And so somebody's rumor about me being a witch suddenly became news and all the village knows me as a witch. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> what a starting point. Mercifully, I didn't know this on day one. And so I'm just in the village and I'm just walking around. They speak two languages there. They speak Swahili, but they also speak their tribal language. And so I was learning tiny bits of the tribal language from kids on the road. They would sing a song to me, and that's how I'd pick up some of the words. And I would go and sit in their mud huts and just learn their kids' names and drink their tea, which often lent to hours on the bathroom afterwards. But in the moment of drinking their tea and learning their kids' names and just being in their mud hut and trying to speak a little bit of their tribal language, all of a sudden barriers started to come down. And it wasn't in some grand, amazing thing that happened. It was in the little things of just loving the people, being one of them, trying to wear their clothes, trying to speak their language, trying to drink their tea. It was in those moments that all of a sudden the barriers started to come down. And, you know, when we love people, it's so simple. 
I meet people who try to complicate this precious book, who come out with rules and regulations and this you can do, this you can't do. You know what I see when I read this book? Love God, love people. And if we'll live our lives of love God, love people, you've got it. And so in the loving people, they suddenly saw the love of God and barriers began to come down. But we began to gain favor over the time, over the months and years that have passed, we began to gain favor. And across the road from our little children's home, there's a government medical center. It's a government-run clinic. Um, it's very basic. I discovered a few months ago that it's um, the cleaner that delivers the babies there. And she only goes and gets the nurse if something's going wrong. It's like, wow, I know I'm Western, but that's just out there. <laughs> but wow. It's the most basic little medical center, but we're in the middle of nowhere. And what they do for uh, being in the middle of nowhere is quite remarkable. They're, they're incredible. And so they, over time, they've now allowed us to go in. And when I take teams out there, they'll allow us to go and pray for the sick in the medical center. And I was there in September 2013. And there was a lady there dying of typhoid and malaria. And I remember she just, you would lift her hand and it would flop back to the bed. There was just nothing about her. They were no longer treating the sickness. They were just tra treating the pain symptoms. She was on the end of life care and she, she was in a bad, bad way. And um, I went in and I prayed over and I said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Nothing happened. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Nothing happened. And I just began to share with her about how Jesus loved her and had a plan for her life. And I prayed a final time, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And nothing happened. I would love to tell you she jumped out of bed and ripped out the cannula and said, hallelujah, who's, I need to get saved. That didn't happen. And I walked out of the medical center that day thinking I would never see that woman again. Great faith. Um, and I just presumed, you know, she, she, was, she was gone. And um, I returned to Kenya the following December. I go every December and have big Christmas parties with the kids. It's amazing. And I went back the following December, and a lady came up to me, and she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, I meet a lot of faces in our village, and no, I'm sorry. She said, I'm the lady that was dying in September. And the same day when you left, not only was I completely healed, they discharged me home. She went from deathbed to discharge like that. I, I was more amazed than she was. <laughs> and, um, but so then she started saying, well, who are these white people? And who's this Jesus they keep talking about? So the locals began to tell her why we're there. They told her about the children's home. But then they started saying, well, the Christians and they were praying in the name of Jesus and believe that in the name of Jesus, that's why you were healed. Well, it's literally like the woman of John 4. She goes back to her village, which is the neighboring village along, and starts telling everybody what God's done. She's like, she's like the greatest evangelist now in that village, telling everybody. As a result, they brought to her a little boy called David. David was nine when I met him, and she brought David to me this day. And David, basically, his mother had died when he was four, but his father lived and worked away. David was now nine, so for five years, David had lived entirely, entirely alone, and he'd lived on grass and worms just to make it till tomorrow. Well, in our village, we have lots of muduts kind of together, and it's still a beautiful culture where if you run out of sugar, your neighbor will borrow it to you because the next month you'll be borrowing it for them. There's still very much a, a real close community feel. And I remember listening to this story about this little boy thinking, that can't be because I know that the whoever lived next door wouldn't have let this boy go without, no. So I said, well, I, I want to see his house. I want to see where he lives. So we went on a motorbike 
four of us on a motorbike, can I just say? No helmets, dirt track roads. Help me, Jesus. And, um, but we went out on a motorbike, and um, it got to a stage where even the motorbikes couldn't get through anymore. It was so, like, the, the bushes and the brambles were up this high. And so we got off the motorbike, and we started walking through, and we'd, we'd, we'd walked, and we'd walked, and we'd walked. And every time we came to a clearing with a few mud huts, I'd think, okay, this is where he lives. But we'd carry on walking. The same happened, the same happened, until eventually we came to a wooded area. We walked through the wood, and at the end of the wood was one little house entirely by itself. And I walked in. I remember the smell when I walked in. The smell was so strong. Everything was rotten and damp. There was one little mattress on the floor, which was totally wet through, and the smell was horrific. And this is where David had lived entirely alone for five years. He literally had survived on grass and worms just to make it to tomorrow. And every day in his little life, he would just think, if I can just make it to tomorrow, if I just make it to tomorrow, if I just get through to tomorrow. When I'm kind of a huggy person, I like to hug people. And when I met David, I threw my arms around him and I remember him just kind of freezing on me because he was so not used to human affection. He wasn't used to being around other people, let alone people touching him. And he was just so shut down. He was one of the saddest little boys I've, I've ever seen. When you look into the eyes of a child, you see that spark in their eyes. You see that passion for life. There was none of that in David. He was just really shut down. And he broke me. He broke my heart. I remember taking him to the medical center, and he got tested for HIV, and he was clear. And that was the first time I saw the hint of emotion, just a slight glimmer of a smile, but then back to nothing. We took him to the home. All my kids had already been living there for a year, so they're running up to meet their new brother. And, hey, I'm Christabel. Hey, I'm Ivine, giving him hugs. And he's kind of just stood there thinking, where on earth am I? We gave him a meal. We gave him a shower. We gave him clean clothes and nothing, just to shut down. The following February, I returned, and the first person I wanted to see was David because he'd moved in on my last day just before flying back to the UK. So when I arrived in February, I was like, where's David, where's David, where's David? Well, all of a sudden, this little boy right next to me just tapped me and waved like, hey, crazy lady, I'm stood right in front of you. This little boy, I genuinely did not recognize him. He was so different. There was spark in his eyes, a big smile on his face. And all of a sudden, this little boy, who had literally just lived till tomorrow, suddenly was living. He wasn't just surviving anymore. He was suddenly living. And to see the goodness of God, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you just go out and love, just love, that's all it is. Not only was this precious lady's life transformed, she was the one healed and saved as a result of that, but then as a result of her life, she went and got David, and he's now been rescued, and he's now one of my babies. And to see the ripples as we just do our little bit of nothingness, you know, nothing remarkable happened that day. We just laid hands and didn't see anything happen before my eyes. But to see the ripples of what God did after that, is remarkable and when we're walking in the plan and the purpose of God there's a power that comes upon your life that just transforms things the last point is purpose psalm 138 verse 8 says the lord will fulfill his purpose for me your steadfast love O lord endures forever psalm 57 verse 2 i cry out to the most high god to the god who fulfills his purpose for me in Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Each and every single one of us has a purpose. Each and every single one of us have an identity in Christ. We're sons and daughters of the most high God. And when we truly fall in love with him and give everything over to him, when we lay ourselves down and lay it all before him, that's when life suddenly takes on. That's when life suddenly takes a whole new purpose. And God has a plan and a purpose for your life. It's not just meant for the pastors. It's not just meant for the missionaries or the evangelists. It's every single one of us. There's a plan and a purpose of God. And there's people that you and I can reach that the superstars can't reach. There's people that you and I come into contact with every single day that Joyce Meyer is never going to meet, that Benny Hinn will never meet, that all these people on the God TV are never going to meet, but you and I are going to meet them. And you and I may be the closest thing they'll ever get to reading a Bible. A lot of people I come into contact with wouldn't dream of picking up one of these and read it, but they know me and they'll read my life. And it's the same with us. If we're just going out, just being the hands and feet of Jesus, just saying, you know what? I got nothing, but I'll give my little lunchbox over to the master and do with it what you will. Then life takes on a whole new purpose. So when you're walking in the, the vision of God, there's a preparation period. There's a provision that comes that's just from heaven. There's a protection that comes upon your life. There's a power that comes upon your life, and it's to give you purpose. We are men and women of purpose today. We don't just live day in, day out, checking in our work cards, stamping in the the stamp nine to five and just kind of live in the mundane life. No, no, no. When you are sons and daughters of the most high God, there's a plan, there's a purpose for your life. And so this morning, I just want to pray with you before I hand over to Pastor Jamie. I just want to pray that if, you're, if you've got a promise in your heart, and you might be at different stages within that, but if you've got a promise in your heart, I just want to pray for you. So if you just want to close your eyes and bow your heads. Father, I thank you that the church is your plan A, that we are your plan A. We're not a plan B, we're your plan A for this world and bringing your glory and bringing your hope and bringing your love to a lost and dying world. And God, I thank you that you have promises and provision for each of our life. And God, I just ask today that we would be men and women of vision, that we'd be men and women who want to carry out your purposes on the earth. Lord, that it would be your kingdom come, your will be done through our lives, Father. God, then everything that we do, you would receive glory. And God, I just speak to the lives that have been waiting, that have got doubt cast upon the vision and the plan for their life. And I just pray right now that they would sense that they're in your quiver that they're so close to you, Father, and that you're working things out in their lives, that they would see you work in such a powerful way to bring that vision to fulfillment, that, God, you would bring your provision, that you would bring your protection, that you would bring your power upon our lives, Father, that, God, as we give everything over to you, everything's always about you, Jesus. It's all for you. It's because of you. It's about you. It is you, Lord, you're the one that we're stopping for when we're loving on the poor. It's you that we're loving on, Jesus. It's all about you, Father. And God, I just ask that your purposes would be filled, fulfilled in the hearts and lives of people this morning, God. That you would reassure them of the promise you've spoken over their lives and that you would bring it to pass, God. That each person would know that they have a divine, divine, divine will of God and that they can walk in it with power and protection and provision today. 
In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Give Becky a big hand clap. Come on, y'all.